morning. You may be seated as we get started this morning. Young children, uh, fourth grade and under, I believe y'all are welcome to head to the kids' lesson out the back, well, my left, your whichever it is. Um, this morning, we are continuing a, a Christmas series that we've entitled Joy, and as we were reflecting on what uh, brings us great joy at Christmas, we decided it would be great to preach from uh, Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Christ, um, something, you know, as you read all those names, it's something that I'm sure brings your heart great joy. Uh, my hope is that maybe before we're done this morning, uh, that it just might. Um, but anyway, we'll be in Luke 3, starting at verse 23, and... Before we dive in, I just wanted to just say something, kind of get it out of the way so that we, then we can dive in more deeply, is there is another genealogy that's found in Matthew 1. And if you look at them and you compare them side by side, you'll find that there are some distinct differences uh, between the two, especially as you look at almost everybody that comes in between Joseph and King David. You'll find differences. So what do we uh, do with that? You'll find that even Joseph's father listed is listed with a different name. So what is going on there? One thing I want to encourage you with is this is not new news to the church, okay? The church has had these gospels in front of them since the very beginning. It's not something that should frighten us away. All the way back in 225 AD, we have the first kind of um, one of the church, early church fathers telling us what his explanation of the two differences were. And what he said is that it was likely a Levite marriage. Um, do you remember what that is? It's when uh, a man's brother, if he were to die before he has a wife, uh, before his, he and his wife had children, then his brother could marry the widow, could marry his former wife, and those sons would be the legal heirs of the deceased brother. So that could be what's going on here. That could be why we have two different names. Um, now, many of you have also heard uh, another popular view that, that maybe this is, uh, that what we have here in Luke is actually Mary's genealogy, okay? And that's a possibility, um, I tend to not jump on that one too much, especially since Luke uh, doesn't mention uh, Mary in it. And Luke is not one who seems at all bashful about talking about women um, at all. So uh, that one seems a little less likely, but it's a possibility. And then uh, there's a final option where what Matthew is doing is he's tracing the royal lineage. He's tra tracing king to king to king who would reign on the throne while Luke is uh, tracing the physical descent. Here's the whole point of all of that. I don't want us to get uh, down into the weeds of that, but just to say, this isn't new news for the church. Um, don't get, we need to be careful about getting bent out of shape about these things, or if you hear these things, um, know that there are good answers to these things. And if you want to try to figure this out and, and try to come to a conclusion on it, which we're not doing this morning, we can give you lots and lots of reading uh, that you will immensely enjoy, I'm sure, um, and so you can dive into it. But what we want to do today is we do want to dive into the genealogy itself, what we have before us here in Luke uh, chapter 3 and verse 23. And, and even though we wouldn't normally think of finding it in a genealogy, uh, my hope and prayer for us is that we will find great joy um, in it this morning. So let's look um, at the text before us right now, starting in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, 
the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Minnah, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Boaz, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Minabdab, the son of Adam, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sareg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arksfed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we confess we hear all these names and, and we don't know much of anything about most of them. And yet, here they are in your word before us this morning. Here they are in the genealogy of Jesus. We pray that you would somehow make these names uh, come alive before us this morning and that we would leave as a result of reflecting on your word with great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we recently had Thanksgiving, no surprise to any of you, but um, I used to get really excited, especially when I was like in elementary school. I got very excited whenever Thanksgiving was coming around because what did you do in elementary school whenever Thanksgiving was coming around is at some point or another you'd talk about uh, the Pilgrim story, right? About the, the coming over the Mayflower, the Mayflower Compact, and the early days of the Pilgrims. And, and at some point, I'd raise my hand and, teacher, you know, I'd, I'd get the attention because I was so excited to share something with the entire class. And I would say, I am the great, 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 great grandson of none other than John Howland. And everybody would be in awe right? As you are probably right now. Um, maybe you don't know who John Halland is. He was one of those pilgrims. He came over on the Mayflower. Yeah, he may have fallen off the boat on the way, but he did make it. They pulled him back out. He made it all the way across. He signed the Mayflower Compact. Um, and that's who John Halland is. Now, that always excited me greatly when I was a kid, you know, to be able to say something like that. We want to be a part of something like that, right? And so when I was in high school, um, one, of, one of the assignments that we had was actually to draw out our family tree, like pictorially, to draw it out. So I got really excited. I was like, okay, now I can see this on picture form, and everybody's going to see that I'm the great, 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 whatever, grandson of John Howland, right? And so I start, I go to my granddad. He gives me this big old folder of all the stuff. His, his mother was a Howland. That was her maiden name. And so he gives me this folder of stuff. Nobody had actually drawn out the family tree all perfect and neat. He just had all this paperwork and stuff that said who begot who and all that Fun, those fun things. And so I laid it all out and I start putting it together and, and I, you know, you work your way through. If you've ever done that, and you work your way through trying to find your way back, who's the son of who, you know, how you prove to get your way back. And, and I kept going back and I said, no, that's not right. And I did it again. And I did it again. And every time I wound up on Henry Halland, John Halland's older brother. And I went and I asked my granddad, what's going on? You know, this is, he's like, no, it's John Halland. Because that's what he's always been told. That's what his mom, no doubt, doubt told him. That's what everybody in the family believed. And, and yet here I'm looking at all this paperwork, and no, he, 
end up on Henry Hallen. Now, he's not a terrible character to, to, to be in the family of. Um, he did come over to the Plymouth Colony probably within the first year. He was arrested for being associated with Quakers. Um, but he's still a good guy. You know, there's some famous people in his lineage, too. And, um, and, it's, and I'm still, you know, you're still part of the Howland family and that bigger tree, and everybody in it is somehow related. You know, the 34th once-removed cousin of whoever, right? But why do we do family trees? So often it's to be connected with somebody, isn't it? We want to find those connections and those cool Connections. You want to be connected with the guy who came over on the Mayflower and signed the Mayflower Compact, right? That's the kind of thing we want. Yet what you don't want to do is, what I've done is, you look back a few generations, four or five, I can't remember, and, and you pull up, and you're actually able to see now, because they've scanned them all in, like these census records, you know? And, and so you can pull up the census record, and there you can see your great-great-whatever-grandfather, and, and right there beside it, listed laborer, and then listed out to the side of that, illiterate. And you read that and you're kind of like, you know, your heart just sinks a little bit, right? Because you, you want to be part of something famous. You want to be part of something big. And, and we look back in our family trees and we find out so often that they're messed up and they don't quite come out where we'd want to. But I am still part of the Howland family. So lots of famous people, I'm connected with them, right? I mean, it's not so bad. I mean, Winston Churchill is a direct descendant of, of Henry Howland too. So that's pretty good, Right? And then if we extend out in the broader Howland family, there's all sorts of people, FDR, the Bushes, um, Gerald Ford, um, Christopher Lloyd, Chevy Chase, you know, you got to be excited about that one, right? Um, Humphrey Bogart. But then you start getting into some more like, huh, I don't know if I want to be connected, you know, like Richard Nixon, like, okay, he was president, but he had his problems. And, and then, you know, I'm a pastor and, and you find out, well, also in that in that Howland family is somebody by the name of Joseph Smith who happened to start Mormonism and, and not just him, but also his, his protege, Brigham Young. And, you know, and, and you, you know, we look at our, our family trees and we find out that they're kind of messed up, right? They're dysfunctional. And as we look at Jesus's family tree this morning, as we've just read it, it's a messed up dysfunctional family tree. What do I mean by that? Let's just look through the names, some of the names real quick. We obviously won't look at them all. Starting right there with Joseph, right? <laughs> Can you imagine being Joseph, a sinful earthly father, trying to parent your perfect son? What must that have been like? In between Joseph and, and King David, uh, down in verse 32, we don't really know much of anything about most of those names. But during that period, those were some very dark days for Israel, Right? So you can imagine that in there are probably some relatively nefarious characters with some probably pretty, you know, sins you don't want to paste on the front page of the paper, right? But then you get down to verse 32 and you get to David. Well, okay, David's a man after God's own heart. Many things to celebrate about him, but he's also a murderer and an adulterer, right? Can you imagine sitting down to do the family tree with your, your kid and you say, yeah, our, our great, great, whatever it is, uh, grandfather, yeah, um, he committed adultery with your great, 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 whatever it is, grandmother, and then he had her husband killed. You know, these aren't the kind of family trees that you want, and this is Jesus' family tree, though. And you get to Obad, the, the son of Boaz and Ruth. Now, Ruth, she's a pretty popular character in the Scripture, but if you're a good Israelite, she's not exactly who you want. She's a Moabitess. She's, she wasn't an Israelite, okay? She was a Gentile. You don't want that in your family tree, Right? And you get to Boaz, son of Salah and Rahab. 
Rahab, of course, a prostitute. No, you don't want that, right? And then you get to Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar. We don't want to dive too deeply into that story, but Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. And anyway, we won't go any deeper into that one. That's not one that you want to go into right now. You get to Jacob, right? Well, Jacob's a good guy. Well, no, he, he had a bunch of favorites, didn't he? He had a favorite wife. He had a favorite kid, you know, and it caused all sorts of, of difficulties in his family. Then you get to Isaac. Well, what did Isaac do? Isaac tricked his brother Esau. Isaac's name is in this genealogy because he tricked his brother. Esau's name is the one that's supposed to be in here. Now, I get it. It's not supposed to be in here because it's exactly as God intended in that sense. But the reason why Isaac's name is in here is because he tricked his way in. You have Abraham passes off his, his wife as his sister. He lacks faith in God's promise and goes and consorts with Hagar, her maidservant. And if that's not enough, let's be reminded of who Abraham was and his father Terah before God called them. Look at Joshua 24. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers uh, lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. That's what you want to hear about Father Abraham, right? What was he, what was he doing before, he, before God called him? He's off serving with his dad, serving other gods, worshiping other gods. And this is who's in Jesus' family tree. You, you get to Noah. Well, Noah, you know, he built the ark. He did a, a great thing there. He obeyed God. But then what does he do whenever he gets out? He gets drunk and naked. And again, we won't go further into that story. Finally, you get to Adam, verse 38, the most notorious of all sinners, right? The original one, right? The one who started it all. You know, and these are just the ones that are some of the sum of the sins that are mentioned to us in Scripture. This isn't even all. It's not like it's a complete record of all these guys' sins. Some of the sins may have been far worse that aren't recorded. And the sum of it, what do we have here? We have a bunch of murderers, adulterers, and idolaters in Jesus' family tree, in his genealogy. One commentator puts it this way, that they were guilty of the same kind of sins as we are. All these men were sinners. It's nice to think that our ancestors were noble and good, that they did something heroic. This is the reason why we like to study our family trees, right? That's what I was talking about earlier. We, we want to somehow come up and our, 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 those that came before us were, were some great heroes, whether they were heroic or not. The people who came before us were just as deeply flawed as we are. We usually remember these men as heroes when you go through this list of some of these people, right? We usually like to call them out as heroes. But they were also scoundrels all the way back to Adam. At the tap root of the family tree, like any genealogy, the one in Luke's gospel records a long line of sinners, doesn't it? That's the genealogy of Jesus. It's dysfunctional. It's messed up. Think about your family real quick. Do you come from a dysfunctional family? Do you have a dysfunctional family? Just think about it. You know, I mean, you know, maybe you've been reminded of it even just over Thanksgiving. Maybe you're thinking about it as you come up to Christmas and, and we're reminded again of our, how dysfunctional our families can be at times. We all have messed up families. Have you ever... 
been embarrassed about those relatives. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? You all have them. You have those relatives. You know, maybe you'd, maybe you'd, um, Ron. How would you, he's going to like this part. Um, How would you like to be able to take a Sharpie to that family tree? You know, fix a few of those troublesome spots. You know, maybe connect you with a couple of more famous people who don't really have many skeletons in their closet. I mean, that, that, that's what we would, we would like. Wouldn't that be great? And the problem is we're, we're kind of missing, I think, the ultimate and main point. We're, we're focused on those dysfunctional people, not the dysfunctional peop- person sitting closest to you. And I'm not talking about your spouse or your kids or your parents. I'm talking about you. How would you like it if your sins were laid out as these men's are in Scripture. I don't think we would be very fond of that. You see, we need to understand. We need to begin to believe that we are the most dysfunctional person in our family. We, we need to begin to think like that, not pointing out others' mistakes, not, not saying, how could you, but really saying, how could I? That's something we struggle to do, don't we? We've got to understand that we are the most dysfunctional person, that we or, as Paul says, you know, what does the Apostle Paul says? He says, I'm the chief of sinners. He understands it, and you understand whenever I'm saying dysfunction, it's kind of a code word this morning for sin, okay? This is a sinful family tree. As we look at ourselves, we should see the greatest sinner that we know. Of course, our problem is we sit here and we look back at this genealogy. I don't know. They're pretty bad. I haven't done that. But to go there is to totally miss the point. We need to reflect on ourselves for first. We need to understand, we need to see our own dysfunction first. I'm sure many of you, you've probably watched some of those cooking shows, you know, where, the, where a chef, a famous chef goes in um, to fix a restaurant, right? And inevitably, they kind of all play out kind of the same way. The chef comes in, and, and what do they begin to do? They immediately criticize everything. They criticize the decor, just how decrepit it is, all those things. They go in the kitchen, how nasty it is, how nasty the freezer's... And, and refrigerators are, you know, that you've seen it. You've seen how they go through these places and then they sit down to eat the food and they can't even eat it. They have to spit it out, you know, making a big scene about it. And, you know, the owner has, has called the show in because they have a problem, right? Things aren't going very well in the restaurant and they're trying to, to fix things. But what inevitably happens is, you know, the, the, the chef um, tries to tell the owner how bad things really are. And the owner usually doesn't want to believe it. And so a part of the show is about them fighting. No, I'm, it's not as bad as you say it is. The food, no, it's, it's okay. It's pretty good. Some people really like it. and It takes a long time. And then finally, at some point, the owner, usually in these shows, they finally get it, right? They finally get, yes, everything is terrible. Yes, I'm a bad boss. Yes, all of these things, and these things need to change. They finally get it, and then the music changes in the background. And suddenly, you know, they have that last night of service and everything goes perfectly, right? And, you know, of course, the restaurant never has any problems again because the chef has come in to rescue it. And in a sense, I think there's something similar going on as we look at the, this family tree this morning. We, we need to hear it. We don't like to hear it. But we need to hear that feedback that feedback, no, as you know, the chef does in those shows, you know, the problem is you. You, the owner, that, you're the problem. We, we need to understand that we are the problem. We need to understand how, how desperately we need Jesus. 
And so one thing that this family tree does for us this morning, it reminds us of our need for Him. It reminds us how dysfunctional we are. And it's only when we, when we start there that then we can be ready for the incredible good news that comes out of this geology, genealogy. The great joy, in fact, that reading through this genealogy should bring us. And I know when, you know, when we read through these names, most of us, we, we usually just pass right over them. But contained in these names is a story of great joy. Let's not miss it. Let's just think of some of these names. I mean, there in verse 31, you have David. David. Now, we already said David had some issues, right? But what did God say to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? He said this. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And get this, in your house, in your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. To the scoundrel David, <laughs> the adulterer, the murderer, this incredible promise comes. David, one of your descendants, one of your children, is going to sit on the throne forever. Luke's reminding us of that this morning. And Jesus is that descendant that descendant who's going to sit on the throne forever. You see, the joy doesn't come from David, and David being this great king. The joy comes from the incredible promises of God to David, and therefore to us. Okay? And you think of Abraham, the incredible promises given to him of a people, this, this nation, all these descendants and children, a, a land... And all of these, they, they begin to come fruition then, in the days of Moses in particular, but they, they come into full picture in Christ. And we get all the way down to the, to the very end of our passage, and who do we have but Adam? Now, there's something helpful here with Adam, because as it says, Adam, the son of God. Here we have this connection that we're all connected to this family, right? And that ultimately who comes out of this family is, is the hope for all people. Not just for the Israelites, but Jesus, the one whose genealogy this is. He is the hope for all people. He is, Jesus is, Luke is telling us, the son of Adam. And you remember the promise given in Adam's day, right? Right after Adam and Eve had sinned. Right after they'd said, no God, I, you've given us all this abundance, but we think you don't know best. And so, what, do they do? what does God do? God promises them a seed. He promises them a son that's going to come, that's going to deal a fatal blow to the serpent, who's going to crush his head. And that's the promise that, that is made 
to Adam. And Luke's helping to show us that that, problem is, that, that promise is, is coming true in Jesus. That this is that seed. You can trace that seed all the way to Adam. And so, Jesus is the son of Adam. But he's the greater Adam. Look at the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And then back in verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the promise of this second Adam that we see. Now, if you notice in your Bibles, Luke messed up here or something. I don't know. He, he puts the genealogy in kind of a strange place, doesn't he? You know, now Matthew, he knows where to put a genealogy, right? He puts it right at the beginning, Matthew 1. Here's Luke 3. Jesus is already born. Okay, he's, he's now a grown man. He's 30 years old. Okay, he's already been baptized. And then Luke says, yeah, let me tell you about his genealogy. It seems out of place, doesn't it? But it's not out of place at all. It comes very intentionally right in between Jesus' baptism and his temptation. Now, if you'll notice at the very beginning of the genealogy, what does it say? That when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. And that's important because at 30 years, that's when a priest could begin to be a priest, if you will. When he could begin to do the priestly things. He could begin to make the sacrifices for other people. He could begin to take on those functions when he turned 30. And so it's no surprise that Jesus is now that age, and it also shouldn't be a surprise then with what he goes and he does. The very last name listed there, the son of Adam. And then what do we have? We have the story of the temptation. Okay, that's not a mistake. Okay, whereas Adam failed, what is Jesus going to do? The second Adam. He succeeds. Here was Adam. Adam was in this, this place, this garden, with plenty. Everything he needed. Nothing lacking. And he's tempted. And he fails. But then, here's Jesus. And where does Jesus go? Jesus doesn't go into this place of plenty. He goes into the wilderness. And then just to make sure things are really complicated, what does he do? He doesn't eat for 40 days. He goes to the, the moment of his greatest susceptibility, his greatest moment of weakness to then be tempted. Okay, Adam was tempted in a place of want and he couldn't stand up to it. I mean, in a place of plenty and he couldn't stand up to it. Jesus here, the second Adam, is in a place of want starving. And yet, what is he able to do? He's able to, to stand up to it. He's able to face the temptation. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeds. And he goes right into it, doesn't he? He's led by Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, but he goes right into it. He knows where he's going. 
He knows he's going to begin the battle. The battle that's ultimately going to end in the crushing of the serpent's head. That which was promised back in Genesis 3. And that temptation out in the wilderness is, is the beginning of that. The beginning of that second Adam undoing all that that first Adam had done. He is the greater. He is the better. He's the second Adam. Look at what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you hear that? Do, do you, does that bring you joy as you think about it? Joy as we understand that while the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded and has made, as Paul says here, made us righteous. It's incredible. It's awesome to, to, to think of. And that's the story that this genealogy is, is telling us this morning. The story of how God, despite a dysfunctional people, okay, despite a, a, a messed up line, despite all of that, He keeps His promises. And you can trace them from Adam through all the way up until you get to Jesus, the one who is the fulfillment of those promises. The one who starts out in that wilderness place, being tempted. But it doesn't end there. That's in a way, that's just the beginning of that battle that he willingly goes into for his people. He willingly goes into it for his people, going ultimately all the way to the cross. This is... Such good news for you and I today. Such good news, I think, that should bring us joy even as we, you know, we read these names and I don't even know how to pronounce them. I was just making it up a few minutes ago. You understand that, right? Okay, it's not like we have some magical ability to suddenly pronounce all these names. We don't even know who most of these people are. Yet we do know that it's a whole line of sinners that culminates and the sinless one. The one who was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. Oh, should that bring us great joy. Where, the, where our father Adam failed, Jesus has succeeded. What could bring us greater joy? Jesus takes this dysfunctional family tree, he redeems it. He takes this sinful thing, he perfects it, and he calls it righteous. Do you get the beauty of what Jesus is doing here? This genealogy, it, it reminds us that God has kept every single one of his promises to us. That in Jesus, that second Adam, all, these, all the promises 
have come true. The second Adam has done what the first Adam failed to do. And that should bring us great joy. Does it bring you great joy this morning? Knowing what the second Adam did for you, what Jesus did for you, and how he is the fulfillment of all the promises. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Reminded, reminded first as we read them of how similar we are to them. How just as we are sinful and flawed, so too were they. So Father, we've been reminded of our own dysfunction, our own sin. Uh, we're so easy to point it out in others. Would you help us to see it in ourselves and ultimately to see how desperately we need you, how desperately we needed Jesus to undo all that has gone wrong in this world and ultimately to battle sin and death itself and to triumph over the grave. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the one promised from the very beginning. We thank you that he came, that he has done what we failed to do, and that in him we get all the benefits, and we are thankful. We pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.